Hello listeners, Matt George here. Some quick network news before we get to this episode of Growing Pains with David Campbell. I know you're really looking forward to it. A fascinating author, Gordon Pitts, with his new book, A Unicorn in the Woods. It's the fascinating story of Q1 Labs and Radiant 6. So what's happening on the network? We have some amazing podcasts lined up for you this fall. I know it's painful. We're at the end of summer, but we're now getting back to some sense of normalcy. And we have a lot of great podcasts lined up for you. The Sensory Friendly Solutions podcast is live. That's in collaboration with Crystal Seaberger and her team at Sensory Friendly Solutions. We're talking to parents, industry experts, leaders in the field of sensory overload. And the very first episode with Dr. Sarah Gander is live. We're also digging into the world of technology with Kathy Simpson and the team at Tech Impact. We're producing a podcast called Tech Talks. The pilot is live now. Go download, listen, subscribe, share. We're talking all things tech in Atlantic Canada. We're gearing up to release the pilot for a really fascinating look at HR in times of disruption. Tanya Chapman, the president and senior consultant at the Chapman Group, one of the best minds in HR, is coming to you with a brand new podcast called Transformational Leadership. We can't wait to be producing this project. It's timely. It's going to help your organization get through this time and all times of disruption. We're really happy to be producing that podcast, and I can't wait to see what Tanya does on the mics. It's going to be fantastic. Also, head over to my own podcast, Unsettled, with Matt George. That's me. We're on episode 57 this week. We've had some really amazing guests from across the region and across the country. We're putting out episodes weekly on Monday. And you can go and subscribe to the Unsettled newsletter for posts Sunday, Wednesday, and Friday. And to keep up with our industry news. Okay, over to Growing Pains with David Campbell. Today, listeners, welcome to another edition of the Growing Pains podcast with David Campbell. Uh, I'm on my own today. Matt George is off, but we have a very entertaining conversation for you today uh, about a, an interesting new book called Unicorns in the Woods by Gordon Pitts, uh, the story of a couple of very, very interesting companies that, uh, that incubated in Atlanta, Canada, incubated here in New Brunswick. Uh, and then went on to take the world by storm. And there's also lots of other good nuggets in this book. So we're going to have a very good conversation today. So I'd like to introduce you to Gordon Pitts, the author of this book. Good, uh, good afternoon, Gordon. Good afternoon, David. So why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. You've written a number of books. You've been a longtime journalist. And you seem to have a little bit of an interest in Atlantic Canada. So why don't you tell us a bit about your background? Uh, thank you, David. Yeah, it's, uh, it goes back. I've, I'm now retired from daily journalism. I was a newspaper reporter with the Ottawa Citizen and uh, 
the uh, old Financial Post and uh, and the uh, and the Globe and Mail for 40 years or so. So, um, and um, during that time, I was privileged to travel the country as a business writer, and um, it got me into um, sections of the country that are, are you know outside the Golden Horseshoe. And I think, in a way, I took on that uh, route of trying to explain entrepreneurialism and in commercial activity in, in areas that aren't uh, Toronto or Burlington or Markham or Waterloo uh, or even Montreal. Uh, so about 15 years ago, I uh, was approached by a publisher to write a story, uh, write a book on the on the uh, great entrepreneurs of the, of the large companies, the landmark companies in Atlantic Canada. And I said, of course, I'm not from Atlantic Canada. And the publisher said, yeah, well, we really, really would like an out- a bit of an outsider perspective on this. And the result of that was the Codfathers, which uh, I'm pleased to see it was well received, uh, not just in Atlantic Canada, but across the country. And that once you sort of delve into a, a subject, you become, uh, quote unquote, a, an expert, although I never would claim to be. But people come to you and say, OK, you did that. You know a bit about this. And I, yeah, I do. And then they say, would you do this article or this book? And a few other Atlantic Canada uh, books have come out of that, including biographies of Purdy Crawford and Sir Graham Day, the uh, uh, the great uh, executive come out of Halifax, who was so prominent in Margaret Thatcher's Britain. So I've been very fortunate. So again, another one of these, about 50, 10, 11 years ago, I was working at the Globe in the business desk and somebody phoned me and said, there are two amazing stories almost simultaneously, these two tech companies uh, were sold and the total realized value, <coughs> excuse me, was a, uh, a billion dollars. And uh, I said, unbelievable, that's the world of, you know, the entrepreneurs I know and love, uh, but they're not, none of the people I deal with have been tech, tech related. That's an interesting story. So I wrote a story about it. And I learned about a guy named Chris Newton who was linked a young techie named Chris Newton in Fredericton, who was linked to both these companies. Now, uh, flash forward another 10 years or so, and I was approached by a couple of people at University of New Brunswick who said, we should have a book on on this phenomenon. And, and I said, nah, it's too small a story. You know, it really, it's narrow, it happened. Uh, and then I did a, after going back and forth for about a year, I did an outline and I said, wow, what a story. I mean, isn't this a story of Canada's challenge, really? Not just New Brunswick, but um, how to engage the areas that aren't in the Golden Horseshoe uh, or Vancouver, et cetera. How to engage them in uh, in this digital economy in a way that they can create uh, economic growth and value creation. And Chris Newton sort of was a kind of a, human unicorn, he created a billion dollars in, and I said, well, we'll call it unicorn in the woods because that's the aspiration to build great companies eventually to come out of these areas that are in the woods or along the shore or on the island or, um, or whatever. And so that's my background. So I noticed in the book, you also referred to them as code fathers. There must've been a little temptation to, to use that as the title as well. Yeah, I, 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 I was. So I decided, I think Jerry Pond is really the code father 
Um, they, you know, he's he's kind of the avuncular uh, kind of father of these companies. So I, I really applied it to him. Uh, but yes, I was tempted. And uh, and uh, in, in a way, this is the future. So it's an appropriate kind of analogy. Yeah, we'll get into Jerry Pond later. I think he's a key figure mm-hmm. and he's on uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of the photos and pages of your book. Um, it's an interesting comment about about is there a story there that will resonate? And I, I do appreciate that you wrote this book. A lot of times stories don't get told, uh, at least told in book format in this neck of the woods because there's not enough demand. I've, I've asked journalists to, to consider writing, for example, on politicians. And they'll say, well, who would read it, right? There might be 20 people that would read it. So there's no real demand. But I think in the case of this book, this should resonate across Canada and beyond because it's really the story of how uh, entrepreneurship can flourish anywhere with the right people, the right ideas, and as we will see through this conversation, some of the right sort of underlying infrastructure, whether it's big firms or key industries that that necessitate these kinds of companies. So I think that's great, and I hope the book gets wide coverage across Canada and beyond because of how the story resonates. So why don't we start right off with Q1 Labs? I think that's fascinating. That's where you start the book. Who is Chris Newton, and how did that company get started? Uh, Chris Newton is a very unassuming um, guy who, like a lot of young men and women, grew up with an interest in technology, but it was in the Miramichi, and uh, his father was a a police chief and uh, involved in a lot of the sort of uh, singular cases of crime and, and, and apprehension and, and, and apprehending people. Um, and, uh, but he went to UNB. Uh, he dropped out of UNB to become a member of the staff, actually, to become a member of the IT service department. So he was not really enrolled at UNB. He was an employee. And he started fooling around with uh, his very unique approach to um, solving problems of cybersecurity and attacks. That was the era of, um, it is, still is, but then it was so unknown and so damaging for these, and there were no way to deal with the cyber attacks that were coming in uh, from outside or internally, the internal problems. So Chris developed a, a sort of a, a system, a way of dealing with them. He wrote code around it, and um, and that was his idea. And through uh, an odd uh, coincidence, he went to a uh, uh, a meeting of of um, with investors, potential angels, and alumni at UNB. And um, this um, crazy obsessive um, entrepreneur from St. John uh, saw him, and it was the answer to Brian Flood's dream. Now, Chris, go back to Chris. Chris, Chris is an indication that uh, entrepreneurialism and innovation don't necessarily have to happen with academics in a lab. They can come out of applied. They can come out of solving problems, basically. Chris was a very smart technology-oriented guy, but he he was not a PhD candidate. He wasn't anywhere close. He never even had a degree. Uh, but if you create the right conditions, luck, timing, and um, UNB had a lot of, gave a lot of support to him, um, you can do this kind of thing. And he and it also pushed him to find the right people to link up with. Who he did not have business skills at all. He didn't know anything about business. Yeah. So the Brian Flood thing is very interesting because I think a lot of times we think of these entrepreneurs 
as kind of self-contained. They have the idea, but they're also the entrepreneur. They're also the one that can raise financing, that there's somehow this, this, you know, everything in one package. But I think you've proven here in this book that it's about those right relationships. So the person with the technology idea matched with the business and the hustler. Uh, tell me about that little story, the relationship between Chris Newton and Brian Flood. Well, they met um, at a uh, show and tell. And Brian, he's a big personality. He pushed himself to the front and started asking questions. Chris really didn't want any part of this. Uh, so he retreated to the catacombs of the uh, computer <laughs> the computer science department. Flood chased him, literally chased him down. Brian Flood is that kind of person. And he said, you've got something here. We're going to create a company. And we're going to take it public. What's your business model? And Chris says, I've never heard of any of those concepts. That's entirely new to me. So that... Uh, Brian's energy just drove Chris forward, and Chris was able to isolate himself to some extent uh, from the hurly-burly of business to work on this. And he brought in his two, uh, they were actually became kind of three amigos, uh, uh, Chris, Sandy Bird, and uh, Dwight Spencer. And the three of them had been buds since early beginnings at UNB, and they were worth working at kind of public, either university or public sector techie jobs Chris brought them in. They worked on the technology. And I, if I could just extrapolate a little bit from that, um, they were fortunate, even within that group, to have different skills. And we talk about the team. Chris was more of a guy who loved to just come up with ideas. He was just, he was trolling the internet continually for ideas and in a good sense, trolling. Uh, but uh, Sandy was, is very good technically but he is also a tremendous ability to explain and sell technology. Um, he could sit at a white, stand at a whiteboard or, or sit with a PowerPoint and, and, and really describe the technology uh, to the people who needed to buy it. And, uh, and then Dwight was a great customer service after, after the sale handholder. And uh, there you had, and, an, you know, coupled with Brian's, drive and salesmanship, you're the perfect team, but you can't do that all the time, but you should try to at least create some elements of that within the team. So I want to come back and talk to you about the process of raising capital, particularly in the US, but I want, before we get there, tell us how that story ended or how that en ended up in an exit. So how long did it take and uh, what did they end up selling for and who did they end up selling to, et cetera? It took a long time by tech standards, the better part of a decade. Um, 2000, we're really looking at the 20th year since Brian met Chris. And in, it was, wasn't until 2011 that they were able to exit. And in fact, investors were coming and going. They were getting very nervous because by Silicon Valley standards, this is a dud. Um, however, uh, they stuck with it and they brought in the U.S. venture capitalists. It was controversial but necessary. And they brought in people with great contacts, both to the markets they wanted to go to and, uh, and, and who were able to, who were able to get the company in, in the financial shape and um, uh, to attract um, either to go public, which was one option. They were thinking of that uh, or, uh, or to get a strategic buyer of some kind, uh, somebody who had wanted this product. Uh, by this time, the Q radar product, kind of defined in a way the market. They, the Americans, new American CEO had taken it into another realm entirely, made it very attractive. 
And uh, IBM um, um, refused to say no, kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And they bought it for the equivalent of $600 million US, uh, which wasn't a unicorn by our standards, but getting into that realm and where you start thinking about a real big tech exit. 600 million. Now, the story of this is a double-edged thing. Um, the American VCs made did very well, and so did some Canadian VCs who were in there at the beginning, including some New Brunswick people who did quite well. But it wasn't the big boffo Canadian deal that we might have wanted in the beginning. IBM bought it, though, and remained has remained a component part of uh, the New Brunswick scene ever since. Uh, in a way, that's a big win um, because it's put IBM on the ground here um, and it's made Fredericton an important part of the IBM family beyond the magnitude that ever would have been as Q1 Labs on its own. Yeah, so it's an interesting. Yeah, I remember yeah. when that happened, there was actually a lot of folks in government and elsewhere that were annoyed and that actually said, look, they sold it to IBM. They're just going to downsize it and, and move all the jobs elsewhere. And I said, have a little more ambition. There's a reason why it's here. That lots of the key players are still here. There's no reason why IBM couldn't actually build around that and grow. And in fact, as you indicate, there still are a major uh, anchor for the cybersecurity cluster in Fredericton and in New Brunswick. So I think it's been a good news story all along. I mean, obviously, and we'll talk a little bit later about Jerry Pond, obviously, you know, there, if there's another trajectory, like an IPO or something else that keeps all the power and decision making here, you know, that's one thing. But at the end of the day, you talked about you talk about a very, very successful company and a lot of uh, New Brunswick investors uh, did quite well as well on that one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell us about Radiant 6. So that, that they're kind of in many ways, there's a similar story there, but the story is actually quite different. The technology and the focus is, is quite a bit different. And even the genesis of the idea uh, is quite a bit different. So tell us about Marcel Lebrun and the origins of Radiant 6. Well, Radiant 6 starts with Chris Newton, and that's the fascinating thing. Chris Newton, the founder of Q1 Labs, the idea man, essentially got fired by Q1 Labs when the American VCs and their CEO took, CEO took over. Now, you might sound that might sound harsh, but there are different horses for different courses, and there are some people who do very well in, in building a company to a certain point, um, and... Uh, and almost every founder has to face, in some way, stepping aside. Either uh, uh, and Chris, uh, Chris found in a very harsh and brutal way the realities of that. Uh, he was too expensive, they felt, for him to keep on. Uh, and Sandy Bird was doing a lot of the heavy lifting on the um, selling to. Uh, so Chris was not eager at that point in his life to travel a lot to visit customers. So Chris was wondering what to do, but Chris is. Almost Chris was operating in his own little bubble all the time. He's an idea guy. He's on the internet. He sees social media before social media is big. This is in very early Facebook, uh, pre-Twitter. Um, and Chris is saying, oh, gosh, this is really interesting. What can I do to build a product around that? And um, he, um, Jerry Pond had been involved in Q1 Labs as a member of the board, as a chairman. He too got kind of elbowed aside by the uh, by the new uh, the the new broom at Q1 Labs. So Jerry Jerry uh, heard what Chris had to say, 
And over a period of time, he said, I know some people you should get in touch with. And one of them was Marcel Lebrun. And uh, Marcel saw what Chris was doing. He didn't quite, he saw, thought it was terrific. He couldn't see a product. Marcel came from a strong product background um, because uh, he had been, um, um, he had been the founder of another company and that was part of Jerry Pond's stable at, um, uh, at um, um, back in the old NBTEL days. We really have to tell that story too. I won't do it at this time. But all these people are in a way veterans, except for Chris Newton, are veterans of NBTEL and the kind of atmosphere they built back then. And they had built a very interesting company that they had taken public and crashed in the great crash that Mar LeBron had hit at it. And LeBron was sort of hanging around wondering what his next thing would be. So Pond put the two of them together and a couple of other people like Chris Ramsey and David Alston, bright young people out of the Jerry Pond and BTEL background. And uh, uh, they came up with the idea of monitoring social media for big companies that need to know what the world was saying about them. And uh, that turned into a very important platform for, uh, for corporate uh, North America. Right. So, so yes. Yeah. So Marcel LeBron, actually, when I, w I worked at NBTEL, I knew Marcel. I knew uh, of him and the, the interesting things they were doing in NBTEL. David Alston, I was less familiar with. Where did, where, what's his background and how does he come into the picture? Uh, David uh, Alston is the ultimate uh, marketer. Uh, he, too, had worked for NBTEL and had worked with LeBron at the uh, NBTEL spinoff, the one that uh, crashed and burned through no fault of their own. And um, so uh, David, David is an idea man, an energy a pepper pot. Again, important part of that chemistry that you need in a company like uh, this. For, so they again got the right team. Um, uh, they had LeBron who had executive background. Um, Alston, a kid out of uh, Sussex, New Brunswick who loved marketing. Uh, Chris Ramsey, great on product development. And and the guy in the lab, Chris Newton. And now they had the figure of Jerry Pond as the kind of uh, guiding light. And uh, Radiant 6, if you want me to tell the story, I'll, I'll put it in a few, in a nutshell. Radiant 6 had amazing timing. They were at the cusp of a revolution, the social media revolution. And they, they caught that revolution and they stayed with it and they did very well. Um, they had some problems in the beginning, like every startup. Uh, they, uh, they had a little uh, customer follow-up issues that they had to solve. They brought in a woman named Daniela DeGrasse to deal with that, who's uh, now a prominent name in the New Brunswick uh, tech world. And uh, so they grew quickly. I mean, they went cash flow positive very quickly for a startup. because, uh, And they went to New York, and they went to talk to PR firms, and they went to talk to marketing people, and they immediately landed some very big uh, global uh, global um, uh, clients. And then they started to be wooed almost immediately. The uh, people wanted to talk to them about selling out. And um, Salesforce of San Francisco was in the middle of. Uh, they were really pioneering um, customer service relationship. Uh, customer relationship management in the cloud. The cloud was taking over. 
And uh, they were all doing business with Radiant 6. They were doing business with Marcel Lebrun. And they eventually bought um, Radiant 6 for, hard to know the exact, but let's say 400 million or so, um, maybe a bit more. There were trailing payments. These things are always a bit nebulous, but uh, this was Chris Newton's second sellout. In fact, it was his first, came before the uh, Q1 lab sale to IBM. Yeah, so within a year, thing. one year, 2011, uh, Chris was a founding father of two companies, which between them were sold for a billion dollars. And uh, I tried to get into the book, into a lot of the drama around that, because personal life intersects, as you know, with business life. It's not one dimensional. And the personal stories of these guys through this period are pretty interesting, too. So I'm going to pivot real quick and then I'll come back to the to the narrative here. But um, you talk about Beaverbrook in the book, one of the New Brunswick's historical tycoons um other otherwise known as the beaver the you pointed out in the book uh, the 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 british colin beaver uh but one of the things about him is that he was very concerned about his legacy and had, making sure that you know as he passed into history that his name would be known is you know he'd be his name would be known with uh, you know with Miramichi associated with Miramichi but also with the province and so on do you think this new group, Chris and, and David and Marcel and others, Brian and Jerry, do you think they have as a big interest in their own legacy or in how they fit in the historical narrative? In other words, are there going to be bronze busts of Chris Newton and the Miramichi someday? Um, no, not like there is in Newcastle uh, of uh, the Beaver. Um, or anywhere else. I mean, I, as an outsider, I was amazed by the Beavers, always been amazed by the Beavers' legacy and, and all the reminders of it, whether it's streets or bronze busts or whatever. Um, we're in a different age now. Um, I think these guys, um, in terms of legacy, they are conscious of it, but it's that um, individually they don't have the outsized net worth of Beaverbrook uh, during his uh, greatest British uh, during his uh, heyday in, in Britain um, as a tycoon and as a media baron. Uh, but collectively, they are quite a force and they can create quite a lot of good. They have stayed. One of the remarkable things about the book is the extent to which they have stayed. Um, that's not to say some of them won't leave at some point or another and come back, but their presence in the community is much quieter. And I don't think they think of themselves as, they're young enough that they're thinking of themselves as, I want a good life for my children. They're still in that age, teenage children or young children. How can I make, and for the children of people that might be employed by their companies. So they're quite dedicated to the community not in a um, sense of putting up statues or anything or, or naming libraries, although that may come, but they're saving swimming pools or, you know, being entrepreneurs who uh, in the tourist business uh, uh, or uh, roving, um, roving entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneur helpers, uh, entrepreneur advisors on boards um, as part of the, um, um, activity at the UNB and uh, University of Moncton and uh, uh, where they're setting up uh, incubators. And uh, so 
yeah, I kind of think there's the opportunity there for them to be to leave a legacy, but it's a very more it's a very different legacy than Beaver. It's probably they, these there's no let there's no shortage of ego among these guys, but self they they're not self centered in in the way they want to leave their legacy. They wanted they wanted to be left in the in the health of the community, and, and I make a pitch in the book that um, sometimes this seems a little quiet. They haven't been nothing. Not a lot has happened since Q1 Labs and Radiant Six, and it's true. And some people are frustrated with that. This there should have been another big one. Well, there's a lot of work going under the surface to make this community, your community, the community of Moncton, community of Frederick, community of Saint John, and the Miramichi, a much better place to live for the generations to follow. And that's where you're seeing their impact. Yeah, I want to come back and near the end and ask you about that the next unicorn. But before we get there, I need to ask you about Jerry Pond. He's the, you call him the code father, but he's kind of, he's almost the connective tissue between not only these firms, but many other firms, uh, startup firms since he left as, as president of uh, NBTEL. So where does he fit in all of this? And is he, does he have as crucial a role as I think we all believe he does in the incubation of these firms and others uh, in New Brunswick? I went into this wanting to downplay Jerry Pond. I went into this with the idea, look, at I, I've known Jerry for a number of years, so I can't do a, a hagiography of Jerry, Jerry Pond. Um, but the problem with that approach is uh, he's, he is ubiquitous, um, and he comes at it with such an interesting approach. He's not always the easiest mentor. He can be pretty harsh. Uh, but pretty effective. Uh, he and and uh, he and Mariner Partners and his friends at Mariner Partners at Mariner Partners have really created a uh, an angel investing cluster that has made a lot not just in New Brunswick but throughout uh, Atlantic Canada. And um, it's interesting that uh, that he's been able to do that and. Um, his tentacles are so um, wide and so deep. Um, I kept writing to write uh, chapters without Jerry Pond's involvement, and you just couldn't do that if you were talking about tech in uh, in, in Atlantic Canada. And um, so, um, uh, hats off to Jerry. Uh, he's mid seventies now, and uh, he has uh, he, he has left a true legacy in the province. Um, he's not the, uh, he, he doesn't have the personal wealth of the Irvings or McCain's or some of the other great families, the Sobeys. Uh, but in terms of influence, it, it's been huge. And, um, he's driven by a couple of things. He likes money and he likes technology, but he's no techie. Um, he's, he's a, um, he's a marketing guy and, a and a professional manager. Um, he just, but he does have what he calls a visceral attachment to the region. And let's not be too cynical. That's pretty important, I think, for having people who not only want to make some money, uh, but also uh, have this gut feel that they want the region to succeed. And his hand is throughout this book, and I couldn't avoid it. I'm sorry. Do you have any thoughts as to why some people are more feel a stronger connection to the soil or to their community than others. I mean, it's a, it is an interesting thing. As you said earlier, a lot of 
Jerry Pond types did leave the region at a young age or, or even when they were older. What keeps or what kept these folks here? Was it, was it family connections? Was it just a love of the maple syrup and rolling hills? Like, what was it? Well, I, I think, I think every, we all want our region to be significant, place where we were born, to be, to be an important part of the world. I'm right, sitting right here in rural Ontario where I grew up, and let me tell you, it's not a particularly exotic part of the country, but I, I really want it to succeed, and I go away and I keep coming back. And I think a lot of people leave um, with the idea that, and you've talked about this, David, I want some experience. I want to make it in the big bad world of Bay Street or uh, Wall Street or Silicon Valley, and they think they're going to come back at some point and play a role because if you are born of the area, you you have a natural desire for it to be important, uh, significant, meaningful in the world and in the economy. And so some traditionally, particularly in the past, have gone and went probably with the intention of coming back. And sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. And sometimes they got so caught up in their lives in Calgary or or Denver or someplace that they just never had a chance to come back. So I think a lot of maritime disproportionately have that view. Jerry stayed. He built a great career here and he stayed. And in the future, I think more will stay simply because there's the opportunity to stay. These tech companies, that's the legacy of Q1 Labs and Radiant 6 is, yes, we can do it here. And yes, there is an, there is a, um, an infrastructure, some of a tech infrastructure. And yes, there is an ecosystem around cybersecurity. And yes, there is a uh, sales uh, force which hires good engineers still uh, in Halifax and, 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 uh, and in New Brunswick. That's the legacy. And now as we move to more of an acceptance that you can do business anywhere, um, particularly coming out of COVID, uh, I think these tech entrepreneurs in a way have situated uh, Atlantic Canada fairly well for the future. So I wanted to ask you a bit about capital raising. You go into it in a fair amount of detail in your book, some of the challenges that that the firms had, particularly Q1 Labs. Um, I'm curious about it. I like to say that if you need 10000 or $30,000, there's a dozen different government departments and programs that have the money for you. If you need a hundred or 200,000, there's still some, you can get it from a COA in the province. If you've got a project that they're interested in, even up to maybe a half a million dollars. But if you need $5 million, there's almost nothing in Atlantic Canada uh, that provides that kind of funding. And I would argue even a million, a million would be a very outsized uh, loan uh, for any government uh, in Atlanta, Canada. So you do describe, but, but on the other hand, it does take money to make money. You can't build a valuation of $600 million uh, by bootstrapping it, right? So tell, tell us a little bit about the problems Q1 Labs ha- had and the learnings from that, from that effort uh, and what other, other young companies can learn when they're looking at raising funds uh, across Canada and the U.S.? Well, from the very beginning, Brian Flood had a dream of building a significant company, and his view was it couldn't be done through funding, as you say, in the merit. Even back in 20 years ago, you know, it was more un- undeveloped than it is now. There are good programs to help you get on a plane and go to Boston, maybe uh, through a COA and other, and they're really useful, but nothing, as you say, to build a significant $600 million company. So he immediately targeted the United States, and it was a humbling 
procedure. I mean, he had 64 VC interviews before he got a bite in the United States. 64 wow. times he went in with Sandy Bird usually, sometimes with Chris Newton, and they would talk to these VCs because New Brunswick was, in those days, nowhere. It wasn't on the map. It wasn't, couldn't even, it wasn't even on the weather map, as people used to say. Uh, all the U.S. weather maps stopped at the edge, edge of Maine. Um, so, um, so what you needed, uh, a lot of people argued with Brian about that. You could do it in Toronto. Yes, he did. He went to Toronto and they laughed at him in Toronto. And it was very underdeveloped in Toronto 20 years ago. It's much better, more fertile. Actually, the Toronto people now come out to the Maritimes mm -hmm. and uh, very often. The challenge is you've got to be just hyper aggressive in going after capital. I mean, and not, I mean, Brian used to start off with the Beaver story, the Beaver book story. We are important. We're an important part of the world. And uh, they loved that, but and then Sandy would come on with the and this is the technology and boy it works, and um, that was very successful. But sixty four, that's a they took a I'm toll crazy. on everybody. Took a mm. toll on everybody. But they were the pioneers, in many ways the pioneers for all of Atlantic Canada in getting the attention of the um, the large VCs. And uh, it's interesting they did it by face to face. And they did it by exploiting contacts among the VCs. There were university ties in Harvard. They were able to really play those relationships. And there was a different style, East Coast, West Coast, Boston area, um, very pinstriped, very traditional, old institutions, John Hancock, you know, you name it, uh, those kinds of people. Um, Silicon Valley was just beginning to thrive, really. It had been going for quite a while, but, you know, we we're in the early days of Google. So, um, you know, they had to play that, too. There was more, the people on the West Coast had no idea where New Brunswick was, but they were willing to take chances on, on uh, tech companies. So you're saying as a result of Q1 Labs and maybe a couple of others, it's actually a an easier time if a New Brunswick firm heads out to Silicon Valley or Toronto to actually get a serious look at their at their product or their technology. It's I think it's now much better. My, oh, I'd say it's if you talk to Halifax gets a lot of the easy fly-ins from the United States, obviously. Um, and but if you talk to not just the people in New Brunswick but around, it is much easier. They get your, uh, but you have to go out and get it. And you know what, what will happen in this post-COVID era in terms of making pitches and the, the type of way VCs will organize themselves in the future? And you can go to Toronto. Radiant 6, I'll tell you, Radiant 6 in many ways uh, reflected the evolution. There were actually Toronto VCs who were willing to take a chance on Radiant 6. And in fact, the big bonanza in terms of returns stayed in Canada. They were, they were they were Canadian VCs and venture capitalists. And um, that um, that was an indication of the growing maturity of the Canadian market. It, it, it had to grow up a bit. And they became very, uh, a very sophisticated, now has become a very deep VC market. In, and now you have new institutions uh, playing, the uh, Creative Destructive Labs, Destruction Labs, uh, uh, which came out of Rotman and is actually a great gathering place for uh, venture capital 
and, and they bring a lot of people into uh, Halifax, particularly, but the entire Mar Maritimes, Atlantic Canada. Um, and um, so it's much, yes, it's much better, but you still have to make the effort. You, ha you still have to do the face-to-face. -face you have to play relationships very strongly. And now we have, you have relationships. You have relationships with the West Coast and the East Coast. They, this was territory that was pioneered by Q1 Labs and Radiant 6. And it's bound to pay off much better for today's entrepreneur uh, who wants to go out in the world and big, not build not just a nice company in New Brunswick, but a nice company in the world. So I wanted to ask you about, and we, you touched on a little bit earlier, but you know, one of the arguments was that if you see these big exits, there'll be a, a large pool or a relatively large pool of risk capital. In other words, that these uh, entrepreneurs that go through the process exit, uh, exit like Chris and others, that there'll be a lot of capital uh, in their pockets and in, in other investors to be reused in other firms. But even beyond capital, that actually the knowledge and expertise of these first generation uh, tech companies and startups, uh, tech entrepreneurs could be used to support a, a new generation. So can you tell us a little bit about how these original founders uh, have implicated themselves in a new generation? Are they investing in more firms now? Are they uh, sitting on boards? Are they mentoring? What has been the sort of um, secondary or echo effects of Q1 Labs uh, and Radiant 6? Well, I think the Radiant 6 it's, it's interesting. The two exits had quite different implications, quite different results. Q1 Labs really created an ecosystem around cybersecurity. It made a lot of money mainly for venture capitalists in the United States, but also for some Canadians. Um, Radiant 6 created the angel investment community in Atlantic Canada through by being a bonanza. There was not that much venture capital invested in Radio 6 before they cashed in, which meant that I think Radio 6 has had an important role in funding. And uh, Q1 Labs, it's harder to trace. It's there, but it's harder to trace. Now, the problem has been for a lot of people, it didn't happen overnight. And a lot of, for personal reasons, I mean, the Q1, the, um, when these companies exited, there was a period where they worked for the buyer. They were quiet um, and they sort of, they, they, they eased the transition into the new owner, the new American owners, IBM. And, and they're still, some of them are still doing that. So you didn't see the immediate impact. And then once they got out, they did start to do that. It hasn't been a bonanza so far. Uh, it's been almost a decade. And you are starting to see them as sort of entrepreneurs at large and board members. and But you're not seeing a big buffle. Where you're seeing it is the Jerry Pond effect. And that's been hugely – and that came out of Radiant 6. Radiant 6 created Jerry Pond in his latest incarnation as a funder. Uh, and so, yes, Radiant 6 has had a lot of impact on financial support for the new companies. Q1 Labs is a great supporter, uh, a, a great uh, forerunner of this ecosystem that's developed. Two different impacts, two different impacts. And, um, and, and only now, I think, only now are we seeing 
the beginning of the real impact. We haven't seen the serial entrepreneur up until now, the guy who came out of those companies. And we're seeing a guy named Sandy Bird has founded a company that's promising cybersecurity. And he's a guy who, as we know, um, sells technology very well to uh, large companies. Uh, Chris Newton, who had personal issues, health issues, is finally uh, back to company that's involved in artificial intelligence around uh, uh, automotive engines. And, and uh, Marcel Lebrun is involved in a whole lot of things, including social capitalism, which is another important part of the... So I think at year 10, you're starting to see the full flowering of these folks and their involvement. Some of like Daniela, Daniela DeGrasse sees herself as a company builder and has worked for a number of of fledgling companies and taking them higher and higher. Their roles are a little different, but if you sort of if you sort of um, shovel down into the infrastructure of technology, they're there. They're not Beaverbrook-like figures, but they're investing here and there. They are on boards. They are mentors, and I think you're about to enter the decade where they will become even more prominent. Uh, some of the things they're backing are uh, not all of them. In fact, probably maybe only one or two of them will bloom into something significant. Even if one does, it'll be wonderful. But you'll start to see that. Now, that's the nature of the business. That's the nature of the business, right? If you invest in 10 companies, you know, maybe one or two will really hit off. So I think that's the whole point of risk capital. Francis McGuire, the current president of ACOA, used to talk about investing 5% of your uh, investable assets in risky stuff like startups, well, that means you have to have a million bucks in the bank just to make a $50,000 investment. So you need to have a few wealthy investors that are prepared to put the, put their money down. And it is good that you can pull that capital from other markets. But if you can actually have local investors, in many ways, that, that's even better. Yeah, if I could just add, David, uh, Brian Flood, we should add to this, you know, who is in many ways... Um, uh, the most, maybe the with Jerry Pond, the most significant player in this revolution, Chris Newton too. Um, he he turned around after Q1 Labs and put a lot of money into another tech company and lost it all. And why did he lose it? Uh, a lot of reasons, but Brian will say that the trials didn't work. It was a great technology, but when they went to flip the switch for a big customer, the thing messed up. The thing didn't uh, didn't work, and with you, it's hard to survive after that. So luck, timing. I mean, if Brian had consider if Brian's had had anywhere near the success he had with Q1 Labs, how that might have changed the province too in the last ten years. Yeah, I think his his story is one of the interesting sub narratives in this book that I think a lot of people don't know, at least to the extent that you cover it. So the people that buy this book are going to learn something I think really new about O'Brien and his, uh, his story. But of course, any, you know, Silicon Valley was, is littered with those kinds of failures, right? I mean, this is unfortunately, or fortunately, this is the, this is why it's called creative destruction. So well, um, if, you, uh, if you fail and you learn something, it's not a failure. Yeah. You know, if you go on and do something with that learning, it's not a failure. So I wanted to ask you quickly about what happens in the embers of this destruction. So we think about BlackBerry going under and seeding a lot of the entrepreneurship coming out of 
uh, Waterloo. You talk about Nortel and it's, it's um, collapse, basic, very, very quick collapse. But one of the interesting things that comes out of the Nortel collapse is a gentleman by the name of Drenda Shukla who ends up at UNB. Why don't you tell us quickly about his story and why, what you think he might be doing to support the startup uh, uh, culture here in New Brunswick? Well, how do how do I explain what's happened since then, and um, um, and where we are in Canada? I mean, Nortel was our technology champion for many years. Uh, it got caught up in the crazy market of the uh, um, pre uh, pre financial meltdown in the, the tech market, actually about twenty years ago, and um, and it collapsed, and uh, it was its technology was sold off in chunks, largely to American uh, and, and, uh, but a lot of great people. I mean, Nortel was a, was a great repository of talented, of smart people. And they recruited engineers from abroad, including one young man named Arendra Shukla, born in Tanzania. Um, and, uh, really came from, um, a very, uh, a, a very strong global, family background, India, Tanzania, uh, the, um, and uh, fell in love with Canada as a, uh, as a visitor. Um, and uh, he um, actually wasn't born. <laughs> we can edit that out a bit. I don't think he was born in Tanzania, but his family had ended up in East Africa, let's say, um, uh, through, his, uh, through his family's uh, uh, job, through jobs and, and careers. And he moved to England for his uh, secondary education, and um, he um, he loved Canada at first sight as a kid, going there as a holiday. And he came over at one point, and he got a job with Nortel. It was the perfect job, global company, significant player in technology, allowed him to live in Canada, which he had grown to love. And um, the um, and then he watched. He was there as Nortel started. It's very fast and very shocking uh, uh, decline. He was already sort of preparing for this. He had seen the writing on the wall. He had a PhD, worked on his PhD. Um, He went for a job interview in Fredericton around this uh, technology enterprise and management program at uh, UNB uh, to become a, uh, uh, the professor in charge of that program, attached to that program, and he got the job. And for him, it was an opportunity. he was emotionally committed to Nortel, and he, as he tells me, he he, he cried actually uh, to go into the empty Nortel parking lot and and see what uh, see what had become of all that. Uh, and in his way, it's his mission again. It's a visceral sense that he wanted to um, build companies. He thought interesting to get nimble young companies going and tr- try to compensate for the end of Nortel. And I mean, he is. He's become, um, again, one of these Jerry Pond types, a little different package, a little different, uh, a little different um, scenario. He's a university-based uh, uh, entrepreneur. He's really an educational entrepreneur within the educational system. And um, he's very passionate. And you look at the people, the companies that have been formed by that program, by the students in that program, some of them are the companies that are charting the new Atlantic Canada. And uh, I give one or two examples in the book. So again, you you have other examples beyond Q1 Labs and Radian 6. One of the ones I find very interesting is Fiddlehead Technology. 
And I find that interesting because of its link to an old, uh, an old school firm and industry here in New Brunswick. Why don't you tell us quickly about the Fiddlehead Technology story? I'll tell you quickly. I used to work with Sean Carver uh, when before when he first came back, and he's a, he was and is still a very dynamic uh, 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 and cerebral individual. So tell us a little bit about that story. Well, Sean and a partner were um, were in the area of. Um, of, um, I guess, customer intelligence uh, in the broader sense. And uh, they were putting together some of their ideas, uh, sort of part tech, part uh, marketing driven. Um, and uh, New Brunswick is good this way. There are events. And Sean was at an event and he ran into a, a, an executive manager at, uh, who was involved in technology at McCain Foods and up in Florenceville. And they got talking and Sean said, you know, we, we really have these, these approaches to consumer intelligence. Um, um, and, uh, and the guy from McCain said, great. And um, very interesting. So they kept talking. Uh, Sean went back and said to his partner, we might have a relationship with these guys. So McCain never actually wrote a check, didn't do an investment in Fiddlehead, Sean's company. They said, we will take you in the company. We'll give you access to our people. We'll give you access to our data. You can build your models and we'll pick what we'd like out of those models for us to use ourselves. And we will also introduce you to people in our networks, our business networks. So I think that's the way forward, uh, David, um, to these legacy companies who built great businesses and um, don't just write a check and walk away and then be unhappy if it didn't work out. Uh, actually write a check if you want, but bring them in and create this kind of uh, contract where the small company gets access to a database, to, to customers, to, um, to the vendor network, whatever. And the older company gets gets a first crack at technology it otherwise would not get a crack at. And that's worked, I think, in the fiddle hits early. Of course, it's all early. Um, but they've done this. McCain has done this with a few companies that uh, in Atlantic Canada, and um, including a vertical farming outfit in Nova Scotia, and, uh, and, uh, and even with a couple of the other um uh, high-flying, promising companies in the in the Fredericton uh, arena, uh, Sean's in Moncton. So, I mean, they say Atlantic Canada. We want to do these kinds of things in Atlantic Canada broadly, uh, and uh, and the um, Fiddlehead story is a good part of that. Whether it ends up being Fiddlehead ends up being a significant player, um, who knows? But uh, uh, it's helped. But I think it's a great story because, again, as you. Uh, articulated in Codfathers, we have a number of uh, large companies based here. Uh, and it even goes beyond that. If you think of Meta V, Blue Cross, it has thousands of employees across the country. Uh, so there's a lot of big firms uh, headquartered in Atlanta, Canada, in the maritime provinces. And it would be great to see more of them interacting with uh, startup companies the way that McCain is doing with Fiddlehead, but with Resin Aerospace and others. Uh, you know, it's it's more of a partnership as opposed to just buying a service and it allows them to get good at it here and then be able to take it nationally or internationally. So I think that's a, 
I'd like to see more of that. It's I know Dave Grabentz at Innovatia talks about that as kind of a sandbox or a sandlot for this kind of activity. But I think it's a it's a great example in your book of that. Just a couple more questions uh, before we uh, end here today, Gordon. I just wanted to ask you a bit about the next big one. And you, you mentioned in the book about Jerry Pond uh, actually forecasting that we would have more of these large-scale exits uh, in 2011. We really haven't seen a lot of it. There's been a few exits, uh, uh, relatively modest scale exits. And again, there's so many factors there, right? Timing and market conditions and, and the, the technology itself or the product itself. So um, why aren't we, do you have any thoughts on why we haven't seen more, you know, 300, 400, $500 million exits in the last nine years? Well, that's the, uh, that's a great conundrum. And um, I, um, I think maybe it's, expectations were probably too high that we would get a lot of those. Um, it, it was still a fairly underdeveloped scene 10 years ago when uh, um, I think we've got to, I think we've got to put the pedal to the floor. I think there was almost a little complacency both on the side of government and public private sector when these two happened. You've got, and I think you've got uh, all the issues that the Atlantic Canada, Atlantic Canada faces such as the need for more people um, uh, more people with the skills that are needed. And that means greater investment, continually invest in university and college training for engineering in the areas that, that produce these kinds of people. Uh, and there may be a, maybe they've taken the foot off the pedal in that area a little bit. Um, and uh, the other thing, of course, that's, uh, uh, that's needed is, um, is capital. And uh, there seems to be a fair bit of that at the, again, at the Angel. There's more than there was a little while ago, but you have to continually create those avenues to venture capital. I think um, it will happen. It happened in actually in Newfoundland, it has with a company called Verifin, Newfoundland and Labrador, where uh, they are probably a billion dollar unicorn company. And um, they've done it uh, by, What's happened since then, and I don't think maybe the New Brunswick has figured this out, private equity is the game now. And it's not venture capital, it's private equity, which can be a little harsher and uh, can be a tough, you know, sharp-elbowed world. But Verifin has been able to uh, uh, achieve all the financing it needs inside Canada. And it's sold a lot to it's, it's sold, uh, it's, uh, its employees have become shareholders as well. So the Verifin and the Verifin model is one that should be studied because that's perhaps the model for the future rather than the Q1 labs model. You've got to adjust. These markets are continually changing and um, and private equity has been the big funder uh, and going public is less the, uh, uh, the, the preferred exit. Uh, you, often it's a private equity event that gives the company the funding it needs to go forward. So I wanted to end our conversation today asking you about your thoughts on the outlook for Atlantic Canada in general. So a lot of national writers write about negative stories in Atlantic Canada uh, because, or Canada in general, right? They're trying to find a story about the demographic picture or the fissures between Atlantic Canada and the rest of the country and all these other stories that have been written about over the years. You tend to have written stories about successes 
So you've come in and said, yes, there's lots of challenges in Atlanta, Canada, but I'm going to pick out some interesting stories that that worked and that were positive. Uh, so this book, you again, you did you were in the region, you talked to many, many people, you, you got a sense of things. What what is your gut telling you, your instincts telling you these days? Do you think Atlanta, Canada is on an upswing, stuck sort of in a in a in a holding pattern or on a downswing? Boy, I'd make some money off predictions in that uh, if I if I knew for sure. Um, I think uh, looking in the very present prism, uh, the um, the Atlantic bubble has done well, and uh, that's been very important going forward to to, to getting we're going into the second wave now uh, globally. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see whether you can um, truly exploit uh, that uh, the fact that you've been able to manage the pandemic fairly well. So that's that's important because I think there is globally a, an interest in working wherever you want to work. And that should bode well for, for the Maritimes. I know I've spent some time with a member of my family looking at nice places to live in the Maritimes while you, while you can work, um, work remotely, okay? And of course that creates um, more people, more skilled people and influx and people Again, it's your old. Uh, you have to bring. You have to uh, hope that the immigration uh, engine starts to uh, rev up again when this all is solved, because really, population is so important, and the type of jobs that people have are so important. Uh, the bring this type of skills they bring. So I'm optimistic, guardedly optimistic. Atlantic Canada has a lot of the attributes of the zeitgeist. The zeitgeist seems to want right now, which is a, um, a livable, livable communities. Um, rural internet. I mean, one of the reasons we should talk about that, right? Rural broadband. One of the reasons New Brunswick did quite well in the um, Frank McKenna, post Frank McKenna, it did get a bit of a leap forward. But 20 years later, we have a huge gap in, 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 nationally in Canada uh, in terms of uh, rural broadband. And uh, I think it's a time for New Brunswick to stand up. And uh, that would be a big part of the equation for the economic future. If it's a more distributed future economically, if it's not dependent on the large office towers quite so much, if it depends on living in a livable place uh, with a sailboat out in the harbor and, and um, you know, Maritimes are well, uh, and Atlantic Canada as a whole are well situated for that. But it needs public policy that's smart, progressive and uh we'll see going forward well hopefully gordon you'll be back in a few years writing another book but what are you are you working on anything right now that that uh that you can tell us about um yeah i'm i'm sort of i do local histories of my area so i'm writing histories of people i think the um central eastern ontario equivalent of boss gibson the people who built these communities uh um entrepreneurs of an earlier age who set the basis for today's, set the foundations for today's uh, entrepreneurs. So I'm very tied up in my local community and doing, it's kind of my giving back to the community. I don't make any money from it. And I, uh, I just enjoy doing it. Yeah. So that's what I'm that. doing. It's, you're telling the story. So the book is called Unicorn in the Woods. Uh, where can people get this book? Well, I think better bookstores everywhere and on Amazon and, uh, um, you know, uh, Indigo and 
all the usual places. It's a tough, it's an interesting period for selling books, but uh, this is available in all the usual places. I, uh, I highly yeah. recommend this book, Gordon. Those who know the story will learn things they never knew before. Those who don't know the story will will it will find this book very readable, uh, and they will go through it fairly quickly. I did because of the fact that it's so readable, but they will come out at the end with a really good story, not only of these two firms, uh, but of the evolution of the tech sector uh, in uh, the Maritimes in Atlantic Canada. So we do appreciate you writing this book, and we hope to have you on again to talk about other issues. David, uh, just uh, thank you very much, and I uh, just want to thank uh, I want to thank you for your uh, the interview I did uh, with you, the conversation we had, which helped uh, so much in the background for this book. Appreciate that. Well, I was happy to do it, and we, as I say, we'll try to have you on again soon. Thanks, Gordon. Great. Okay. Growing Pains with David Campbell is produced by me, Matt George. Is engineered by the great Zachary Pelche, and is part of the Unsettled Media Podcast Network.